Um, so if you were just driving down the road and saw the signs and decided to come in, uh, this is going to be a great day for you. Uh, we were starting a new series that I've been planning for a long time, and I was really excited about it until we decided, hey, let's let people choose the topics. And then people started choosing topics, and I went, wait, 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 no, 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 let's back up. <laughs> and so we are actually engaging this week in these things. I want to explain something to you. Here's why I shouldn't do this, and here's why pastors don't do this, all right? Because uh, there's, um, to a certain extent, something, is, it's just a cost benefit ratio in dealing with things uh where and so you know i've got a lot of notes because i'm not going to say the wrong thing today <laughs> by not addressing a scripture uh, that contrasts what popular opinion is and i mean popular opinion of the world but even more so popular opinion of the people who call themselves christians or are part of the church by not addressing Scripture, which runs contrary to ourselves, we delude ourselves into developing some kind of a safe Christianity. And this, uh, it's, this false Christianity, this false desire, uh, leads us down this road because the church will create a safe and a shallow environment and ask people to go with Jesus on a mission that is deep and dangerous. And so we end up either sending out Christians who have um, not been equipped in order to do the ministry of Jesus because we've shared very shallow and very safe messages, or, and many, many, many churches do this, we abandon mission altogether, and we think well, we're just going to be safe and shallow over here in like a holy huddle and not engage with the dangerous or not engage with the awkward and not engage with the world. Avoid the mission of Jesus. And think the mission of Jesus is safety and security in the church. Which, if you know Jesus, like on a personal level, it's the opposite. God, um, oh, let me say this. If your faith refuses to be questioned, I would say you have a very insecure faith. All right? I am, I hope, the number one critic of myself. Like, there are things that I do and things that I believe that I frankly think are ridiculous and should be mocked. Uh, if the things that I think are unmockable, or if you make fun of me and it hurts my feelings for some reason, then what it reveals is the level of the things that I hold are actually very shallow and insecure. And so during this series, I may poke or prod at things, and if you're like, that's offensive. God put a calling on my life a long time ago, and he called me to biblically what's called be a prophet. And that, you might think that's crazy, right? Like I, um, so do I. Uh, a, a prophet in the biblical sense, and I, I'm part of, and I don't mean to sound braggy, I'm just going to tell you the truth. I'm part of this long line of people who've been called by God to say things um, on behalf of God. And a prophet is... Uh, in the Bible, we would all refer to also as a preacher today. Like they, they bring forth truth. But there's also been experiences in my life where God tells me uh, things in the future that are going to happen, uh, and I share those with people, and then they happen. Uh, the rule in the Bible for prophets is if they're a false prophet, you throw rocks at them till they die. And, and so I don't go around 
uh, predicting what gender your baby's going to be, all right? Like, I, I don't uh, engage. I, I, okay, I saw when that lottery was over a billion, I bought tickets. I lost, all right? Uh, like, some of you are offended already. That's awesome, but... My daughter actually got mad at me. She, you're, you're wasting money. And I'm like, I spent $15 on your stupid Nerf gun. I'm spending $4 on this. All right. <laughs> wasting money. But so I, I, my experience of the calling of God is this part of this long history of prophets. And the role of the prophet uh, in the uh, scripture, there's kind of three roles. A prophet, a priest, and a king. And the king would be like the organizer and administrator. And the prophet's job is to uh, come down from the mountain or the wilderness wherever he lived. And there were crazy prophets, like crazy. They did things that um, would get me fired, and, uh, <laughs> and rightly so. Uh, but they would come down and just kind of um, uh, uh, mess everyone up. And so the king would be there organizing and make sure society works, and the prophet would come down and just mess everybody up. And then there would be priests there who would say, it's going to be all right. The prophet's going back up the mountain. We're going to be cool, all right? So I want to encourage you to get in a life group with priests uh, because I'm not very good at being a priest. I'm much better at saying, uh, well, my intention uh, over this next five or six weeks is to uh, offend you. Like, I have that intention. Uh, and, and I want you to question your politics, and, and I want you to find out who you actually worship, uh, I, some of you, I want you to actually get saved. Uh, are we offended yet? Uh, <laughs> some of you have no relationship with Jesus. The religion that you hold to is this made-up syncretic thing that has nothing to do with the gospel, and I hope that you get saved over the next five weeks. All right. Uh, second, <laughs> I hope that you find uh, a way to, for Jesus to be meaningful and true and beautiful in your life and a way to live in submission to the will of God. Uh, and then, and this is a priestly thing, it's being nice, and I'm working on feelings and those kinds of things, but uh, <laughs> no one ever told the prophet Isaiah to work on his feelings, right? When he, was, he walked around three years naked to make a point. You didn't even know that was in the Bible, and here you are like, why is he wearing a tie? Just be happy I'm dressed. All right. So, <laughs> when... <laughs> Good night. When, this is what happens when the video doesn't go, right? Uh, I want you to enjoy the peace of God. Uh, I want you to get saved. I want you to uh, find a meaningful way to live in submission to the will of God. And then I want you to actually enjoy the peace of God. Uh, there are things in this world that are going to get better. And there are things in this world that are going to get worse. And in that, my faith in Jesus isn't affected. Let me tell you how my summer goes. Uh, in my summer, I have this friend on Facebook, on social media, and social media to me is one of the funniest things in the history of the world, right? Like people post things and hashtag them and think they're making a difference. It's awesome. Uh, and I like to post things about LeBron James, all right? And I've chosen LeBron James to be my demi-social media god uh, because it's the funniest thing to do. And now my good friend Will, I'll tell Will to listen to this online, hates LeBron James. He's like a LeBron James atheist, all right? Uh, and he says lots of good points about Michael Jordan, you know, who was a cheater. But the, <laughs> he says lots of good points about him. 
Uh, but every time all summer long that he pointed something out to me, I sat back and went, we won. Like, we won the championship. Like, so no matter how my summer went, I have it on my DVR still, that last game seven and the whole celebration afterwards and Sports Center after that because I won. And so all summer, it's been like Easter for me, right? You thought he was dead, and then he rose again. And I know I'm comparing LeBron to Jesus, but so is Jesus. I want you to live in the peace of God because the truth of Easter is still true today. Like no matter how good or how bad things get, they thought Jesus was dead, and he rose again. And he lives today. And no matter what's going on or how offended you get by the preacher during this little series, Jesus rose again. And for people who put their full faith and trust in Jesus, that means they're going to spend their eternity with God in heaven. Like forever. So today might be a little rough, this heat might be a little brutal, but hey, you walked out of that stupid tomb. And so I want you to, this is what I hope happens. For those of you who need to get right in your relationship with God, that you get right. For the, maybe it's a recommitment, maybe it's a commitment for the very first time that you put your full faith and trust in Jesus. For those of you who don't understand what it is to live for Jesus or to fully submit to his will, I hope that happens for you. And then I hope that at the end of this series you have this peace. Like, hey, there's a lot of messed up stuff. But guess what? He rose from the dead. And so when we start panicking or freaking out or trying to move to Canada, he rose from the dead. And there ain't much that you can do. Biblically, it says that there's nothing you can do to change that. That Jesus is victorious, and at the end of everything, those who follow him, uh, to quote Trump, win. <laughs> Every time I say win or winning, I'm quoting Trump now, because he, he's very good at winning. All right. I'm here in America on a green card. All right. Uh, <laughs> and so I wore this, and someone asked if my green card interview was today or they were evaluating me or something. Uh, I'm here on a green card. I uh, came to the United States because I chose to. Uh, I'm originally from Canada. Uh, my grandmother on my dad's side uh, wrote a small little book about her trip over from Scotland on the boat. Uh, which is remarkable. We're very, very established in Canada. Where I grew up, you drive up Carmichael Drives to Carmichael Corner, turn left, you'll see the Carmichael Church, you turn right, there's a Carmichael Farm. Uh, we have, I'm from somewhere, and uh, we decided to move down here, and I wanted to, I lived in Georgia, in the south. Uh, I'm in a, a, a mixed race marriage. If you don't know, my wife was singing, and uh, we lived in Stevens County, Georgia, which still has an active KKK. And uh, that was a new experience, but we'll talk about that on the week we talk about racism. And uh, then we wanted to move to the West Coast, all right? And if you're from Canada, that means California. Uh, and then I found out there's a place in Northern California called Oregon, and, uh, and a Northern Northern California called Washington. And I'd never heard of these places. Uh, and that's real. Like, I couldn't have, I'd be like, where's Oregon on the map? I'm like, by California. Um, because I'm from Canada uh, and I enjoy free health care, my politics lean a little bit left. 
uh, because I, I, and people argue with me, but it's hard to hear them over my free health care. Uh, <laughs> but when I was in Canada, uh, I actually served four years in the Army Reserve. And uh, the military is an important part of my life. This, I'll tell you why I'm actually wearing this, and it's actually really meaningful. Heather's, my wife's grandfather, served in World War II in England. He repaired uh, planes that had been shot but managed to make it back to England. And uh, he came back and was a pastor in the Christian Missionary Alliance. And then as he retired, he became a chaplain at the VA. And when he died, Heather's grandma gave me basically his entire library, anything that his kids didn't want for sentimental value. And as a young pastor, I got all of these books. I haven't even read them all. And I got this tie. Uh, so it's super meaningful to me. <laughs> My grandfather in World War II was too young uh, to get in and fight. And Canada started World War II a little bit earlier than you. He would have been older than America, but not bitter, you know, but you know, it could have been done a lot earlier if you came over and helped out a bit. <laughs> but the, uh, <laughs> uh, I served in Canada's army, so I have to do that stuff or my friends will razz me. Uh, we, uh, my grandfather tried to get in, but he was too young and uh, he was 16. But they told him if you were First Nations or what you call Native American, you could. He went back the next day and lied and said he was because he was 16. Uh, but then as he was going through the process, his, someone who knew his mom saw him and said, what are you doing here? And he got caught. And so his two older brothers got to serve in World War II and survived. Uh, my gr his ancestors served in World War I in the same regiment that I served in, uh, in the Army Reserve. And I have a little plaque from them when they served in World War I. Military is an important part of my life. I like guns, and I'm good at them. Uh, like, good at them. And so I lean a little bit right on that, all right? So uh, if you try to pin me down and argue about my personal politics, that, that's totally fine with me. Uh, if you want to say, oh, I'm not coming back next week, that guy is a lefty pinko commie, I'm okay with that, right? Or if you say, that guy, all he does is watch Fox News and Hannity and Riley and blah, 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 blah. I'm okay with that too, right? Like, uh, you can insult and mock my politics, and, and I'm very, very relaxed about that. Um, all right. <laughs> I don't want to share my politics, is what I want to say, but I also want to tell you that I have a bias, and my bias is all over the place and very Canadian. All right. I want to get into deeper conversations. I want to get into more dangerous conversations. And so, so this is, we're actually going to talk next week about immigration uh, and refugees. And uh, as a person who went through your immigration system, we're going to talk about immigration <laughs> and refugees. Um, but seriously, we're going to, I have friends, friends who are in this country illegally. And uh, I have other friends uh, like myself who are, uh, I, are here legally. I, I know people like myself who have anchor babies. My two kids are fully American, right? Uh, they're not anchor babies. I have a green card. <laughs> but I can call them that because then I get myself in trouble. The next week, uh, we're going to talk about racism. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, systemic and personal racism. We're going to talk about community institutions like education and athletics and arts and law and order and incarceration and class systems. Uh, and we're going to talk about how Jesus addresses that. The next week, we're going to talk about uh, sexuality and gender and identification and what is marriage and how this conversation has been moved 
uh, from sexuality to identity. And uh, I'm even gonna talk about uh, some of my uh, theological views on some of the arguments that have been used for and against uh, conservative or liberal positions uh, towards that. Then, the last week, um, I'm going to say, I'm going to answer the question, can a person be a Christian and be a, uh, all right, and, uh, and you can say the political party that you're not, all right, so can a person be a Christian and be a, uh, nobody's willing to say it, that was good, that was like, I ain't saying it, right? You don't know that, I wanted to get ushers and sit you in sections, right? Like, uh, but this is Oregon, so you'd all be independent, right? Like, uh, <laughs> I thought that would be fun, but I would secretly sit you with people from the other party and then tell you you're with people from your party and then you could like rally together and you'd be like, oh, I thought they were totally a lefty pinko commie, but they're on our side, right? Uh, I bought them the new Bill Riley book. O'Reilly, O'Reilly, right? Is it Riley or O'Reilly? O'Reilly, all right. That was also a test to see who watches that show. All right. <laughs> Y'all are terrified. I'm not saying anything. All right. In the year six, like six uh, in the contemporary era, uh, Jesus uh, was 10 or 12 years old. Uh, he was... Uh, originally, we thought he was born at zero in some new archaeological stuff. We think he was born between 3 and 6 B.C. In the year 6, uh, Rome, the nation of Rome, ruled the entire world, or the entire known world among Western society. As far as you could go, Rome was in charge. And Rome would do things uh, to stay in charge. They would do things, they would give the people things, appease them with uh, entertainment or food and those sorts of things, excuse me. Uh, but Rome would also make sure that the people knew who was in charge uh, by uh, quelling riots and letting them know, uh, and the, what they did in Israel in the year six, what they did to let them know that Rome was still in charge was installed something called an imperial tax. An imperial tax that was put in in the year 6 uh, by the Romans. Jesus is 10 or 12 years old, old enough to know what's going on and hear his parents and his uncles and aunts talk about this. The imperial tax required the people to experience slavery as slaves of Rome, meaning what you made wasn't kept by you, it was given to someone else. You would work, and without your choice, and in their culture, I know we have taxation or whatever, but in their culture, taxation was seen as a form of slavery. And you would have to pay this imperial tax with the words, Caesar is Lord. And that would be the pronouncement that you had to make. For the Jewish people, which Jesus was one, living in the nation of Israel under Roman rule, this was heresy. This was anathema. This was an abomination. Because God is the only Lord and the only Master. And so they were forced to do this, or else they're, and Rome was smart, they're fan, they wouldn't torture you, they would torture your family members. They would persecute the people who you, your whole village, but leave you alive. And Rome would systemically force obedience. In that, two guys, Rabbi Judas of Gamala and Sadduk, the Pharisee, organized a group uh, that was a resistance, and they named themselves the Fourth Philosophy. 
And so this resistance among the Jews started with these two leaders, a rabbi and a Pharisee, who were kind of quasi-religious political uh, um, groups, led this thing called the Fourth Philosophy. And it was based on their exclusive loyalty to God, which meant they could not pronounce any sort of loyalty to anyone else. Even something simple like saying Caesar is Lord and not meaning it, you couldn't do that. And so they organized this group that would not pay tribute and would not acknowledge Caesar as Lord. And there were groups within that group. Some became extremists, what we would call terrorists if we were Roman. Uh, and they were called the Sicarii. And the Sicarii would actually, because um, it means a dagger man, and they would actually... Uh, dagger people, dagger Roman citizens and soldiers in large crowds and there would be a sudden death and they would kill them and then slide their dagger back under their cloak and disappear and nobody knew who they were. Uh, they were de facto suicide bombers because they were doing this too. They were terrorists, but they were Judas, Jewish, Judaism terrorists. And Jesus was growing up in this. And they couldn't really gain traction because the majority of people didn't want to die. The fourth philosophy, people outside of it called them zealots. Those zealots, we use the word extremists. And we refer to people in that way. But in that culture, there was a dominant culture who ruled over the whole world, the Romans. And they were doing things to the Jews which were wildly oppressive. Now, Jesus, 20 years later, is doing ministry, walking around in Israel, in uh, Judah, in the Roman Empire. And people walk up to Jesus, and they ask him this question, and I'm going to read it. It'll be on the screen for you. And here's what happens. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians. Herodians, uh, Pharisees we just talked about, Herodians were a political party because Herod was the puppet king. He was Jewish, but he was a puppet king of Rome. So later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? The consequences of this, if he pays, then he is breaking the Mosaic law, which says we don't pledge allegiance to anyone but God. If he doesn't pay, he's breaking the Roman law, and he or his relatives will be killed and tortured for it. So they've put him in a place where he either reveals that he's not the Jewish Messiah, or he gets killed by the Romans. They're trying to speed things up. Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And a denarius was a coin worth about one day's wage. You'd work all day, they'd give you a denarius at the end of the day. And they brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Because it would have Caesar's image and some words, some propaganda about Caesar. Caesar's, they replied. And Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and God what is God's. 
and they were amazed at him. Now, so you know, amazed in an angry kind of way. <laughs> it wasn't amazed like, Jesus is so smart. It was amazed like, Jesus is so smart. We want to think a lot of the time that there's this separation between church and state. There's a separation between your spiritual life and your everything else life. That, there, that Jesus was only talking about a spiritual kingdom. When he said, my kingdom is not of this world, it means it doesn't in, it's, it's not from this world at all or even engages with this world. It's very, very, very far away. This is the dominant American religion today. It's called, or sorry, this is the dominant American version of Christianity today. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism because we all have some kind of morals. Jesus is our therapist. He comes and helps us with our problems, but we don't have problems. We don't bother him. And then deism means that God is far away and only comes over here when we need him. But God isn't imminent or present with us in our daily lives. So we want to, a lot of the time, think that Jesus, or it was only talking about his kingdom in a spiritual way. But the questioners who are asking him this did not think that God was far away. They thought that God was very present. And they knew very well, very well, that if Jesus answered one way, he dies. If Jesus answers another way, he dies. And to not pay the imperial tax in the year 4 BC, so around the time Jesus uh, died, the, the fourth philosophy had like some precursors to the fourth philosophy. There was a revolt, and Rome just came in and killed everybody. There were whole villages where they'd just go in and kill everybody so that the people would know if you go against Rome and go against what we say, you die. Politics had a price. So Jesus, in this, is very much a political movement because Jesus in this, says, I don't care about your stupid tax. Do whatever you want. Give him back the garbage that is his and give God what is his. Jesus answers, and when they would have heard him, he's siding with the fourth philosophy without saying, I'm a part of the fourth philosophy. Let me read this to you. This is... Uh, <laughs> Let's get offensive. This is Luke chapter 6. Morning came. Jesus called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, who he also designated apostles. We teach this in Sunday school, and uh, you're going to get mad about this. Simon, who he named Peter, this is the list, and his brother Andrew, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and then there's two Judases, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a tra traitor. But before they list the two Judases, it says, Simon, who was called the Zealot, or the Zealot. One of Jesus' disciples was an extremist Jewish terrorist. Crap. <laughs> because we know that Jesus hates extremism. Because we want to follow moralistic therapeutic deism where we have this nice religion where we can be like God is nice and he's nice to us. And certainly there's no extremists in our religion. Well, you're going to get to heaven and there's going to be a guy there who keeps his hand on his sword all the time. And you're going to be like, you can probably let that go, buddy. And you'll know he's Simon the Zealot. And there's another Simon named Peter and he'll be making bad choices because that's what he did all the time. 
But this person, who was a part of a political party and was identified as that, was called by Jesus to be one of the 12 apostles. Not just like a follower of Jesus, not just like a person Jesus loves, a follower of Jesus. Now, we may say, you know, this was early in Jesus' ministry, and when I was early as a pastor, I did some things I probably regret. Okay, I do regret. I got some phone calls. I worked with teenagers, and I got some phone calls from parents about not putting Vaseline in hair, about seat belts. I told them to wear them. But when we try to criticize Jesus as making a mistake, we take away his divinity. Jesus calls and employs as a disciple, a person who can become like him, a lower-level leader, a zealot. This is why you don't preach this stuff. <laughs> because we want Jesus to call the nice people. We want Jesus to call the good people. We want Jesus to call the normal people, the non-extremist people, the people who don't have political affiliations with groups that we don't like. We want Jesus to call us. And Jesus is going around calling these people. And then, as Jesus dies and rises again, and he tells his apostles to go out into the world and plant churches and tell people about me and all this, well, he doesn't, Jesus doesn't say to plant churches, the apostle Paul does. But the very best missionary and the last person that Jesus actually ministers to directly and calls is the Apostle Paul. Apostle actually, in a biblical sense, in a way, means called by Jesus specifically. And Paul was actually saved by Jesus specifically. Nobody else. It was Jesus. Like, when you became a Christian, probably someone told you about Jesus. Uh, I'm sure you felt like Jesus speaking to you in a, in a, in a way. But for Paul, Jesus actually, like, his voice talk to him. And so Paul travels all over the Roman Empire starting churches and in Paul's writings, you can look this up in Romans, Corinthians, or Philippians and other books that Paul writes their saying became Jesus is Lord. Which we think is a nice thing and we'll sing it in a song Jesus is Lord. Dun, 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 right? That's my uh, skill right there. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. That's an easy thing. In that day, saying Jesus is Lord was saying that Caesar is not Lord. And the Caesar demanded that you saw him as Lord or else you faced death. Saying Jesus is Lord in that day was a wildly political statement, a wildly dangerous political statement. And so Jesus became this political movement because the spiritual couldn't be restrained only to some kind of non-material spiritual world, and it actually impacted the way that people lived and thought. Jesus, without outrightly saying it, sides with a particular way of thinking about the world, and then his followers start anti-Caesar communities throughout the entire Roman Empire. Is it any surprise that the majority of church leaders in the beginning were killed for their activity? 
when the Roman way of handling things was killing people. Thankfully, we don't live in a country where people get killed for any religion or any practice of any kind of faith system. Because the calling of the Christian is that Jesus is Lord, which means no one else is. And I'm not saying there are places in the scripture that say to obey the government. Paul, the apostle, who was writing all this Jesus is Lord stuff, says, obey the government. And we'll talk about that probably in an online video, but Jesus, like, we're not supposed to all of a sudden, all right, Christians, we're not paying taxes anymore. Pay your dang taxes, please. I pay taxes and I'm not allowed to vote. It's called uh, taxation without representation. I tell my American friends when I come over, I ask, where's your tea? And then I throw it in their sink. <laughs> and I'm like, what you gonna do now, right? Usually they don't invite me back. But <laughs> when, uh, it, the, so this doesn't mean we have this outright revolt against government. But the way of Jesus is that Jesus supersedes any earthly authority that could possibly be constructed. And at any point, if my government in any place that I live tells me to live in a way that is not the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus takes preference at any and all personal cost. And my calling from Jesus and all Christians is to propagate the message that Jesus is Lord. I don't even care. I know uh, we don't have this in Canada, but you say that pledge uh, in your schools all the time. Uh, I'm going to have to learn it for my little citizenship test in a few years, but we'll also delete this before I do my citizenship test. But uh, <laughs> when we, uh, I, I don't, I know for some people they don't like doing it, and that's a totally Christian thing, and that's totally fine with me, uh, but I don't feel like pledge like I pledge allegiance to my family or my my soccer team all right like it's I but I don't think in my mind that my soccer team is anywhere near or above Jesus as well I don't think my country uh, or any political system or any political place is greater than Jesus the church and state separation is a western democracy or capitalist notion it's not in the Bible. In the time when Jesus lived, the Caesar established himself as Lord and, uh, and, and the government. The Caesar was known as a son of God. And when he died, he rose again as a God and became, and you could see him as a, represented as a star in the sky. The things that we say about Jesus in the scripture were said by the Romans about their Caesar. And so we have this yet in America, even though we, ha we say separation of church and state, and there's uh, plenty of good things about that, I don't think it's true. Because we have a religious expectation on our culture, we celebrate when people do things with compassion. We celebrate when our... Uh, I th it's a fun thing for me because you have an expectation of your president that he be pastoral. 
that he show up when bad stuff happens and say things that are caring, right? You have that expectation. Uh, my, my friend Mike Huckabee put that on social media, that he had an expectation that the president will do something because there's something bad happening. And some of you are really angry about that and some of you really love it. I don't, I find that entertaining. And then we all have to regard, or at least acknowledge, sorry, that we have this expectation of pastoral leadership from our president. You also have an expectation of pastoral leadership from your boss. Like when something tragic happens in your life, you expect that someone will have compassion and a general decency towards you. When popular opinion changes, and let me say this, you go back 50, 60 years, popular opinion on homosexuality was completely opposite to what it is today. Completely, 100%. And we've changed what is moral in this country in uh, five or six decades. Uh, I keep forgetting how long ago the 60s were, but... And that's not because I was there and forget it because I was doing things that people did in the 60s because I don't do that. <laughs> but when we had 60s, 70s, and on and on and on, before that, there was a certain morality that was accepted as uh, what I call, and sociologists call, American civil religion. American civil religion is the religion that is connected to the state. And it's kind of like the grease in the relationships that we have. American civil religion, you can practice any religion you want, but there's a general decency and kindness that brings us together and allows us to function. And American civil religion thought one thing, and now it thinks another thing about homosexuality. Go back 200 years, American, uh, no you don't, just move down south. American civil religion thinks one thing about interracial relationships that now American civil religion thinks something different about. It's unacceptable to be what used to be acceptable. And the reason American civil religion works so well is because the standard is based on the popular opinion of the people. In Christianity, the standard is based on the scripture. And so what has to happen is we have to change our interpretation of the scripture to fit which you see happening all the time. I have good friends who do this and write books and that kind of stuff actual friends, not just people I make up as if they're my friends. But when we want to change so that we match American civil religion, we can't change the actual words. So we have to change the meaning behind the words or change what they meant or change how they said it. And what, <laughs> what undercuts all of that is if you have the authority over the scripture to determine what the scripture says, then the next generation does also, and the next generation does also, and the next generation does also, which therefore actually takes all the authority out of the scripture and puts it in the interpreter. So that's a good time. The actual separation of church and state isn't church and state, it's Jesus and state. The, church is <laughs> the church can be connected to the state because it's been colonialized by moralistic therapeutic deism. Most Christians here and in any other church, most Christians don't follow a Christianity that Jesus or the Apostle Paul taught in the scripture. They follow a Christianity that is very moral and doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're moral, that's therapeutic, like God help us, God bless the USA and 
right? And uh, I don't know that song very well, but I don't even know O Canada well, so don't blame me. But there's, and this deistic thing where God is far away and we can, the way we live now is, is like it's okay. And, and it's okay to not be okay. And, and we're going to be cool. And this is the best part of American civil religion and moralistic therapeutic deism. Good people go to heaven. And so if all the good people go to heaven, then the sacrifice of Jesus in the scripture uh, becomes no. It becomes uh, useless. If the standard of going to heaven is goodness, and as long as you've got more goodness than badness, then Jesus died for no reason at all. Because Jesus actually says that in order to enter into the presence of God, you have to be completely sinless. And the scripture teaches that none of us are. But Jesus' death pays the price for your sin and wipes the slate clean. And Jesus' resurrection provides the ability and the opportunity for you to have life. Jesus and the state are separated. Religion, or what we want to call church, and the state are not. And part of that not being separated is to say that they are separated. It's a good time. Separation of church and state. If you actually want something to be separate, you've got to go all the way over to Jesus. You've got to go all the way over and it, I'm not saying that this makes Christianity unique because there's other faiths and other systems that have to, in order to be true to themselves, be separate from American civil religion and moralistic therapeutic deism. I know those are big words. You can Google it later. If, all right, just in case I haven't ruffled any feathers yet, if your system of faith and belief in Jesus perfectly matches political structures and systems or parties, then you don't have faith in actual Jesus. If systems and structures that are created by men and women, but by mankind, so are inherently flawed, match perfectly what you believe about the created order by God who has no sin and does not create things that are corrupt, if it matches perfectly, then one of those things is wrong. And since it's impossible for God's way to be wrong, your way is wrong. In everything, the contest isn't about which religion gets to be in charge. And Christianity's been in charge of the Western world for a long time. And it's actually really difficult, and I feel bad for us, uh, because the Christianity is learning how to not be in charge. We've been in charge for a long, long time of the Western world, right? That's just truth. We've done some really awesome stuff. We've done some really mm, not so awesome stuff. But when something happens and the people who are looking for God, they go to the Christian church. And that's not happening as much. And so Christianity is having to learn how to not have this. We kind of had a chaplain role where if something's wrong, we talk to the Christian God. Or if there's a tragedy, we go to the Christian God because they were connected. And what separated wasn't religion, wasn't moralism. It wasn't even like a therapeutic nature of having a civil discourse that respects and empathizes with each other. What separated and what's become difficult for the church is to see how separate Jesus is 
from man-made institutions and systems. That's the good news. While we live in a time that is radically difficult because Christians are learning how to be Christian in a completely new way because the world has changed so fast and is changing so quickly in relationship to the Christian faith, you live at a time when the Christian faith has an opportunity for renewal and rebirth and re-engagement with the world in a meaningful and beautiful way. This is what our church is. This is why in the Western world so many churches are starting, also why so many churches are dying, but so many churches are starting, including the Grove, because people say, things are changing, I love God, and I love Jesus, and I want to follow Jesus, and I have no idea what that looks like in this world. How on earth do I deal with those issues that James is going to talk over the next week, or next weeks? And so bands of people get together who don't say, we have the answer. They say, we have good questions. <laughs> and the popular thing to say is that Jesus is the answer, right? Like if you grew up in Sunday school, you know. If you don't know what's going on, it's Jesus. And when they say, they, you, they don't even, nobody ever, they don't say you're wrong because you can't say Jesus is wrong. They have to say, well, I was looking for something else. And then you say Moses, right? <laughs> if you didn't go to church, you're trying to teach your kids how to do good in Sunday school, Jesus, Moses, can I go to the bathroom? Those are the only things you need to know. But we have this opportunity to ask questions. And while we say Jesus is the answer, I think it pushes us a step further in what we've done today and what we're going to do over the next week. It pushes us further into saying Jesus demands the question. Jesus says, whose image is on that and whose inscription? And you bring things to Jesus. Jesus, how do I deal with this? And Jesus doesn't give you an answer. Instead, he says, where did that come from? What does that look like? And so if over the next few weeks, you want a solution to racism, a solution to immigration, and a solution to gender and sexuality issues, and a solution of what political party you should belong to, you will find this awkwardly shortfall from your expectation. But if you're hoping that Jesus will continually question everything that you assume so that any assumption that you have or any belief or any practice that you have that is apart from the ways of Jesus will be put on the cross and you will become more and more Christ-like through the examination and conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life, this is the right place. This is the right church. Here's what we're going to do. I talked with the worship band because uh, um, this is not as devotional as most of my sermons. And there's not like an immediate, go out and apply. It's much more like, I'm going to mess with your life, and then we'll see what happens. But we're going to, each week, uh, worship together afterwards. And I know I ran late, but you got bonus stuff for free. We're going to worship together because I think that's a powerful thing for us to do. To be a group of people who are standing under the convictions and the questioning of the Holy Spirit and God in our life, and to stand and worship together. There are people in this room who think your political views are not so. And then there are other people who support that other candidate who think you're not so. Then there are some of you who just ain't even going to vote, and everybody's angry at you. 
But we're going to sing together and worship together in the question that Jesus is putting towards us and ask Jesus to move into us and Jesus to be Lord and Jesus to be the Son of God and Jesus to be risen from the dead, alive in heaven, actively working in our lives and hearing our prayers. Let's stand and pray together. We're going to pray really quickly and then the band's going to start. Lord, uh, we confess our sin to you individually and together, the sin of avoiding uh, topics that we thought were awkward or confrontational or that would just uh, not serve this cult of niceness that we want to be in. I thank you for this church. I really, really do. I thank you for everybody here and their willingness to allow the scripture to question us. There are people in the Bible that you use, Lord, that we do not like. There are people in this church that we do not like. Not me, I like everybody. But there are people in your plan and in your will who disagree with things that we think and disagree with things that we hold so dear. God, I pray you would free us from that. As we worship together, bring unity to us in a way that is particularly full of your spirit and your will and your voice. Amen.